28, Ordi, yet it was not without its hours of nobility and generosity. Scott describes him as, a man of real goodness of heart, and the kindest and best feelings, miserably thrown away by his foolish contempt of public opinion. While at Cambridge, Byron published his first volume of poems, Hours of Idleness, in 1807. A severe criticism of the volume in the Edinburgh Review wounded Byron's vanity, and threw him into a violent passion, the result of which was the now famous satire called English Bards and Scotch Reviewers, in which not only his enemies, but also Scott, Wordsworth, and nearly all the literary men of his day, were satirized in heroic couplets after the manner of Pope's Dunciad. It is only just to say that the afterwards made friends with Scott and with others whom he had abused without provocation, and it is interesting to note, in view of his own romantic poetry, that he denounced all masters of romance and accepted the artificial standards of Pope and Dryden. His two favorite books were the Old Testament and a volume of Pope's poetry. Of the latter he says, his is the greatest name in poetry. All the rest are barbarians. In 1809 Byron when only 21 years of age, started on a tour of Europe and the Orient. The poetic results of this trip were the first two cantos of Child Harold's pilgrimage, with their famous descriptions of romantic scenery. The work made him instantly popular, and his fame overshadowed Scots completely. As he says himself, I awoke one morning to find myself famous, and presently he styles himself the Grand Napoleon of the Realms of Rhine. The worst element in Byron at this time was his insincerity, his continual posing as the hero of his poetry, his best works were translated, and his fame spread almost as rapidly on the continent as in England, even Goethe was deceived, and declared that a man so wonderful in character had never before appeared in literature, and would never appear again, now that the tinsel has worn off, and we can judge the man and his work dispassionately. We see how easily even the critics of the age were governed by romantic impulses. The adulation of Byron lasted only a few years in England. In 1815 he married Miss Milbanke, an English heiress, who abruptly left him a year later. With womanly reserve she kept silence, but the public was not slow to imagine plenty of reasons for the separation. This, together with the fact that men had begun to penetrate the veil of romantic secrecy with which Byron surrounded himself and found a rather brassy idol beneath, turned the tide of public opinion against him. He left England under a cloud of distrust and disappointment, in 1816, and never returned. Eight years were spent abroad, largely in Italy, where he was associated with Shelley until the latter's tragic death in 1822. His house was ever the meeting place for revolutionists and malcontents calling themselves patriots, whom he trusted too greatly, and with whom he shared his money most generously. Curiously enough, while he trusted men too easily, he had no faith in human society or government, and wrote in 1817, I have simplified my politics to an utter detestation of all existing governments. During his exile he finished Child Harold, the prisoner of Chillon, his dramas Cain and Manfred and numerous other works, in some of which, as in Don Juan, he delighted in revenging himself upon his countrymen by holding up to ridicule all that they held most sacred. In 1824 Byron went to Greece to give himself and a large part of his fortune to help that country in its struggle for liberty against the Turks. How far he was led by his desire for posing as a hero, and how far by a certain vigorous Viking spirit that was certainly in him, will never be known. The Greeks welcomed him and made him a leader, 
and for a few months he found himself in the midst of a wretched squabble of lies, selfishness, insincerity, cowardice, and intrigue, instead of the heroic struggle for liberty which he had anticipated, he died of fever, in Mizolong High, in 1824, one of his last poems, written there on his 36th birthday, a few months before he died, expresses his own view of his disappointing life, my days are in the yellow leaf, the flowers and fruits of love are gone, the word, the canker, and the grief are mine alone, works of Byron, in reading Byron it is well to remember that he was a disappointed and embittered man, not only in his personal life, but also in his expectation of a general transformation of human society, as he pours out his own feelings, chiefly, in his poetry, he is the most expressive writer of his age in voicing the discontent of a multitude of Europeans who were disappointed at the failure of the French Revolution to produce an entirely new form of government and society. One who wishes to understand the whole scope of Byron's genius and poetry will do well to begin with his first work, Hours of Idleness, written when he was a young man at the university. There is very little poetry in the volume, only a striking facility in rhyme brightened by the devil-may-care spirit of the cavalier poets, but as a revelation of the man himself it is remarkable. In a vain and sophomoric preface he declares that poetry is to him an idle experiment, and that this is his first and last attempt to amuse himself in that line. Curiously enough, as he starts for Greece on his last, fatal journey, he again ridicules literature, and says that the poet is a mere babbler. It is this despising of the art which alone makes him famous that occasions our deepest disappointment, even in his magnificent passages, in a glowing description of nature or of a Hindu woman's exquisite love, his work is frequently marred by a wretched pun, or by some cheap buffoonery, which ruins our first splendid impression of his poetry, Byron's later volumes, Manfred and Cain, the one a curious, and perhaps unconscious, parody of Faust, the other of Paradise Lost are his two best-known dramatic works. Aside from the question of their poetic value, they are interesting as voicing Byron's excessive individualism and his rebellion against society. The best-known and the most readable of Byron's works Mazepa, The Prisoner of Shion, and Child Harold's Pilgrimage. The first two cantos of Child Harold 1812 were perhaps more frequently read than any other work of the same author, partly because of their melodious verse partly because of their descriptions of places along the lines of European travel, but the last two cantos 1816-1818 written after his exile from England, have more sincerity, and are in every way better expressions of Byron's mature genius. Scattered through all his works one finds magnificent descriptions of natural scenery, and exquisite lyrics of love and despair, but they are mixed with such a deal of bombast and rhetoric, together with much that is unwholesome that the beginner will do well to confine himself to a small volume of well-chosen selections. Byron is often compared with Scott, as having given to us Europe and the Orient, just as Scott gave us Scotland and its people, but while there is a certain resemblance in the swing and dash of the verses, the resemblance is all on the surface, and the underlying difference between the two poets is as great as that between Thackeray and bulwer lytton Scott knew his country well its hills and valleys which are interesting as the abode of living and lovable men and women. Byron pretended to know the secret, and wholesome side of Europe, which generally hides itself in the dark, but instead of giving us a variety of living men, he never gets away from his own unbalanced and egotistical self. All his characters, in Cain, Manfred, 
the Corsair, the Jower, Child Harold, Don Juan, are tiresome repetitions of himself, a vain, disappointed, cynical man, who finds no good in life or love or anything, naturally, with such a disposition, he is entirely incapable of portraying a true woman, to nature alone, especially in her magnificent moods, Byron remains faithful, and his portrayal of the night and the storm and the ocean in Child Harold Orange are passed in our language, Percy Bysshe Shelley 1790-1822 make me by liar, even as the forest is, what if my leaves are falling like its own, the tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep, autumnal tone, sweet though in sadness, be thou, spirit fierce, my spirit, be thou me, impetuous one, in this fragment, from the O to the West Wind, we have a suggestion of Shelley's own spirit, as reflected in all his poetry, the very spirit of nature, which appeals to us in the wind and the cloud, the sunset and the moonrise, seems to have possessed him, at times, and made him a chosen instrument of melody, at such times he is a true poet, and his work is unrivaled, at other times, unfortunately, Shelley joins with Byron in voicing a vain rebellion against society, his poetry, like his life, divides itself into two distinct moods, in one he is the violent reformer, seeking to overthrow our present institutions and to hurry the millennium out of its slow walk into a gallop, out of this mood come most of his longer poems, like Queen Mad, Revolt of Islam, Hellas, and the Witch of Ellis, which are somewhat violent diatribes against government, priests, marriage, religion, even God as men supposed him to be, in a different mood, which finds expression Alastor, Adonais, and his wonderful lyrics, Shelley is like a wanderer following a babe, beautiful vision, forever sad and forever unsatisfied, in the latter mood he appeals profoundly to all men who have known what it is to follow after an unattainable ideal, Shelley's life, there are three classes of men who see visions, and all three are represented in our literature, the first is the mere dreamer, like Blake, who stumbles through a world of reality without noticing it, and is happy in his visions, the second is the seer, the prophet, like Langland, or Wycliffe, who sees a vision and quietly goes to work, in ways that men understand, to make the present world a little more like the ideal one which he sees in his vision, the third, who appears in many forms, as visionary, enthusiast, radical, anarchist, revolutionary, call him what you will, sees a vision and straightway begins to tear down all human institutions, which have been built up by the slow toil of centuries, simply because they seem to stand in the way of his dream. To the latter class belongs Shelley, a man perpetually at war with the present world, a martyr and exile, simply because of his inability to sympathize with men and society as they are, and because of his own mistaken judgment as to the value and purpose of a vision. Shelley was born in Field Place, near Horsham, Sussex, in 1792. On both his father's and his mother's side he was descended from noble old families, famous in the political and literary history of England. From childhood he lived, like Blake, in a world of fancy, so real that certain imaginary dragons and headless creatures of the neighboring wood kept him and his sisters in a state of fearful expectancy. He learned rapidly, absorbed the classics as if by intuition, and, dissatisfied with ordinary processes of learning, seems to have sought like Faustus, the acquaintance of spirits, as shown in his hymn to intellectual beauty, while yet a boy, I sought for ghosts, and sped through many a listening chamber, cave and ruin, 
and Starlight would, with fearful steps pursuing hopes of high talk with the departed dead, Shelley's first public school, kept by a hard-headed Scotch master, with its floggings and its general brutality, seemed to him like a combination of hell and prison, and his active rebellion against existing institutions was well underway when, at twelve years of age, he entered the famous preparatory school at Eton. He was a delicate, nervous, marvelously sensitive boy, of great physical beauty, and, like Cooper, he suffered torments at the hands of his rough schoolfellows, and like Cooper, he was positive, resentful, and brave to the point of rashness, soul and body rose up against tyranny, and he promptly organized a rebellion against the brutal fagging system. Mad Shelley, the boys called him, and they chivied him like dogs around a little coon that fights and cries defiance to the end. One finds what he seeks in this world, and it is not strange that Shelley, after his Eden experiences, found causes for rebellion in all existing forms of human society, and that he left school to war among mankind, as he says of himself in the revolt of Islam. His university days are but a repetition of his earlier experiences. While a student at Oxford he read some scraps of Hume's philosophy, and immediately published a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism. It was a crude, foolish piece of work, and Shelley distributed it by post to everyone to whom it might give offense. Naturally this brought on a conflict with the authorities, but Shelley would not listen to reason or make any explanation, and was expelled from the university in 1811. Shelley's marriage was even more unfortunate. While living in London, on a generous sister's pocket money, a certain young schoolgirl, Harriet Westbrook, was attracted by Shelley's crude revolutionary doctrines. She promptly left school, as her own personal part in the general rebellion, and refused to return or even to listen to her parents upon the subject. Having been taught by Shelley, she threw herself upon his protection, and this unbalanced couple were presently married. As they said, in deference to anarch custom, the two infants had already proclaimed a rebellion against the institution of marriage for which they proposed to substitute the doctrine of elective affinity. For two years they wandered about England, Ireland, and Wales, living on a small allowance from Shelley's father, who had disinherited his son because of his ill-considered marriage. The pair soon separated, and two years later Shelley, having formed a strong friendship with one Godwin, a leader of young enthusiasts and a preacher of anarchy, presently showed his belief in Godwin's theories by eloping with his daughter Mary. It is a sad story, and the details were perhaps better forgotten. We should remember that in Shelley we are dealing with a tragic blend of high-mindedness and light-headedness. Byron wrote of him, the most gentle, the most amiable, and the least worldly-minded person I ever met, led partly by the general hostility against him, and partly by his own delicate health. Shelley went to Italy in 1818, and never returned to England. After wandering over Italy he finally settled in Pisa, beloved of so many English poets, beautiful, sleepy Pisa, where one looks out of his window on the main street at the busiest hour of the day, and the only living thing in sight is a donkey, dozing lazily, with his head in the shade and his body in the sunshine, here his best poetry was written, and here he found comfort in the friendship of Byron, Hunt, and Trelawney, who were forever associated with Shelley's Italian life. He still remained hostile to English social institutions, but life is a good teacher, and that Shelley dimly recognized the error of his rebellion is shown in the increasing sadness of his later poems, O World, O Life, O Time, on whose last steps I climb, 
trembling at that where I had stood before, when will return the glory of your prime? No more, oh, never more. Out of the day and night a joy has taken flight, fresh spring, and summer, and winter hoar, move my faint heart with grief, but with delight no more, oh, never more. In 1822, when only thirty years of age, Shelley was drowned while sailing in a small boat off the Italian coast. His body was washed ashore several days later, and was cremated, near Viareggio, by his friends, Myron, Hunt, and Trelawney. His ashes might, with all reverence, have been given to the wines that he loved and that were a symbol of his restless spirit, instead, they found a resting place near the grave of Keats, in the English cemetery at Rome. One rarely visits the spot now without finding English and American visitors standing in silence before the significant inscription. C.O.R. Cordium. Works of Shelley. As a lyric poet, Shelley is one of the supreme geniuses of our literature, and the reader will do well to begin with the poems which show him at his very best. The Cloud. To a Skylark. Oh to the West Wind. Tonight. Poems like these must surely set the reader to searching among Shelley's miscellaneous works to find for himself the things worthy to be remembered. In reading Shelley's longer poems one must remember that there are in this poet two distinct men, one, the wanderer, seeking ideal beauty and forever unsatisfied, the other, the unbalanced reformer, seeking the overthrow of present institutions and the establishment of universal happiness. Alastor, or the spirit of solitude 1816 is by far the best expression of Shelley's greater mood. Here we see him wandering restlessly through the vast silences of nature, in search of a love dream maiden who shall satisfy his love of beauty. Here Shelley is the poet of the moonrise, and of the tender exquisite fancies that can never be expressed. The charm of the poem lies in its succession of dream-like pictures, but it gives absolutely no impressions of reality. It was written when Shelley, after his long struggle, had begun to realize that the world was too strong for him. Alastor is therefore the poet's confession, not simply a failure, but of a dying hope in some better thing that is to come. Prometheus Unbound 1818-1820, a lyrical drama, is the best work of Shelley's revolutionary enthusiasm, and the most characteristic of all his poems. Shelley's philosophy if one may dignify a hopeless dream by such a name was a curious aftergrowth of the French Revolution, namely, that it is only the existing tyranny of state, church, and society which keeps man from growth into perfect happiness. Naturally Shelley forgot, like many other enthusiasts, that church and state and social laws were not imposed upon man from without, but were created by himself to minister to his necessities. In Shelley's poem the hero, Prometheus, represents mankind itself, a just and noble humanity, chained and tortured by Jove, who is here the personification of human institutions. In due time Demogorgon which is Shelley's name for necessity overthrows the tyrant Jove and releases Prometheus mankind, who is presently united to Asia, the spirit of love and goodness in nature, while the earth and the moon join in a wedding song, and everything gives promise that they shall live together happy ever afterwards. Shelley here looks forward, not back, to the golden age, and is the prophet of science and evolution. If we compare his titan with similar characters in Faust and Cain, we shall find this interesting difference, that while Gerda's titan is cultured and self-reliant, and Byron's stoic and hopeless, Shelley's hero is patient under torture, seeing help and hope beyond his suffering, 
and be Mary's love that the earth may be peopled with superior beings who shall substitute brotherly love for the present laws and conventions of society. Such is his philosophy, but the beginner will read this poem, not chiefly for its thought, but for its youthful enthusiasm, for its marvelous imagery, and especially for its ethereal music. Perhaps we should add here that Prometheus Island and probably always will be a poem for the chosen few who can appreciate its peculiar spirit-like beauty. In its purely pagan conception of the world, it suggests, by contrast, Milton's Christian philosophy in Paradise Regained, Shelley's revolutionary works, Queen Mab 1813, The Revolt of Islam 1818, Hellas 1821, and The Witch of Ellis 1820, are to be judged in much the same way as is Prometheus and Bound. They are largely invectives against religion, marriage, kingcraft, and priestcraft most impractical when considered as schemes for reform, but abounding in passages of exquisite beauty, for which alone they are worth reading. In the drama called the Cenci 1819, which is founded upon a morbid Italian story, Shelley for the first and only time descends to reality. The heroine, Beatrice, driven to desperation by the monstrous wickedness of her father, kills him and suffers the death penalty in consequence. She is the only one of Shelley's characters who seems to us entirely human. Far different in character is Epipsychidion 1821, a rhapsody celebrating platonic love, the most impalpable, and so one of the most characteristic, of all Shelley's works. It was inspired by a beautiful Italian girl, Emilia Viviani, who was put into a cloister against her will, and in whom Shelley imagined he found his long-sought ideal of womanhood. With this should be read Adonai's 1821, the best known of all Shelley's longer poems. Adonai's is a wonderful threnody, or a song of grief, over the death of the poet Keats. Even in his grief Shelley still preserves a sense of unreality, and calls in many shadowy allegorical figures, sad spring, weeping hours, glooms, splendors, destinies, all uniting in bewailing the loss of a loved one. The whole poem is a succession of dream pictures exquisitely beautiful, such as only Shelley could imagine, and it holds its place with Milton's Lycidas and Tennyson's In Memoriam as one of the three greatest elegies in our language. In his interpretation of nature Shelley suggests Wordsworth, both by resemblance and by contrast. To both poets all natural objects are symbols of truth, both regard nature as permeated by the great spiritual life which animates all things, but while Wordsworth finds a spirit of thought, and so of communion between nature and the soul of man, Shelley finds a spirit of love, which exists chiefly for its own delight, and so, the cloud, the skylark, and, the west wind, three of the most beautiful poems in our language, have no definite message for humanity, in his, hymn to intellectual beauty, Shelley is most like Wordsworth, but in his, sensitive plant, with its fine symbolism and imagery, he is like nobody in the world but himself. Comparison is sometimes an excellent thing, and if we compare Shelley's exquisite, lament, beginning, O world, O life, O time, with Wordsworth's intimations of immortality, we shall perhaps understand both poets better, both poems recall many happy memories of youth, both express a very real mood of a moment, but while the beauty of one merely saddens and disheartens us, the beauty of the other inspires us with something of the poet's own faith and hopefulness, in a word. Words were found and Shelley lost himself in nature. John Keats 1795-1821 Keats was not only the last but also the most perfect of the Romanticists. While Scott was merely telling stories, 
and Wordsworth reforming poetry or upholding the moral law, and Shelley advocating impossible reforms, and Byron voicing his own egoism and the political discontent of the times. Keats lived apart from men and from all political measures, worshipping beauty like a devotee, perfectly content to write what was in his own heart, or to reflect some splendor of the natural world as he saw or dreamed it to be. He had, moreover, the novel idea that poetry exists for its own sake, and suffers loss by being devoted to philosophy or politics or, indeed, to any cause, however great or small, as he says in, Lamia, do not all charms fly at the mere touch of cold philosophy? There was an awful rainbow once in heaven, we know her woof, her texture, she is given in the dull catalogue of common things, philosophy will clip an angel's wings, conquer all mysteries by rule and line, empty the haunted air, and no mine and weave a rainbow, as it air well made the tender person Lamia melt into a shade, partly because of this high ideal of poetry partly because he studied and unconsciously imitated the Greek classics and the best works of the Elizabethans. Keats's last little volume of poetry is unequaled by the work of any of his contemporaries, when we remember that all his work was published in three short years, from 1817 to 1820, and that he died when only 25 years old. We must judge him to be the most promising figure of the early 19th century, and one of the most remarkable in the history of literature. Life. Keats's life of devotion to beauty and to poetry is all the more remarkable in view of his lowly origin. He was the son of a hostler and stable keeper, and was born in the stable of the Swan and Hoop Inn, London, in 1795. One has only to read the rough stable scenes from our first novelists, or even from Dickens, to understand how little there was in such an atmosphere to develop poetic gifts. Before Keats was 15 years old, both parents died and he was placed with his brothers and sisters in charge of guardians. Their first act seems to have been to take Keats from school at Enfield, and to bind him as an apprentice to a surgeon at Edmonton. For five years he served his apprenticeship, and for two years more he was surgeon's helper in the hospitals, but though skillful enough to win approval, he disliked his work, and his thoughts were on other things. The other day, during a lecture, he said to a friend, There came a sunbeam into the room and with it a whole troop of creatures floating in the ray, and I was off with them to Oberon and Fairyland. A copy of Spencer's Fairy Queen, which had been given him by Charles Cowden Clark, was the prime cause of his abstraction. He abandoned his profession in 1817, and early in the same year published his first volume of poems. It was modest enough in spirit, as was also his second volume, and in it on 1818, but that did not prevent brutal attacks upon the author and his work by the self-constituted critics of Blackwood's magazine and the Quarterly. It is often alleged that the poet's spirit and ambition were broken by these attacks, but Keats was a man of strong character, and instead of quarreling with his reviewers, or being crushed by their criticism, he went quietly to work with the idea of producing poetry that should live forever. As Matthew Arnold says, Keats had flint and iron in him, and in his next volume he accomplished his own purpose and silenced and friendly criticism. For the three years during which Keats wrote his poetry he lived chiefly in London and in Hampstead, but wandered at times over England and Scotland, living for brief spaces in the Isle of Wight, in Devonshire, and in the Lake District, seeking to recover his own health, and especially to restore that of his brother. His illness began with a severe cold, but soon developed into consumption 
and added to this sorrow was another, his love for Fanny Brown, to whom he was engaged, but whom he could not marry on account of his poverty and growing illness. When we remember all this personal grief and the harsh criticism of literary men, the last small volume, Lamia, Isabella, The Eve of St. Agnes, and other poems 1820, is most significant, as showing not only Keats's wonderful poetic gifts, but also his beautiful and indomitable spirit. Shelley, struck by the beauty and promise of Hyperion, sent a generous invitation to the author to come to Pisa and live with him, but Keats refused, having little sympathy with Shelley's revolt against society. The invitation had this effect, however, that it turned Keats's thoughts to Italy, whither he soon went in the effort to save his life. He settled in Rome with his friend Severn, the artist, but died soon after his arrival. In February, 1821, his grave, in the Protestant cemetery at Rome, is still an object of pilgrimage to thousands of tourists, for among all our poets there is hardly another whose heroic life and tragic death have so appealed to the hearts of poets and young enthusiasts. The work of Keats, none but the master shall praise us, and none but the master shall blame, might well be written on the flyleaf of every volume of Keats's poetry, for never was there a poet more devoted to his ideal entirely independent of success or failure, in strong contrast with his contemporary, Byron, who professed to despise the art that made him famous. Keats lived for poetry alone, and, as Lowell pointed out, a virtue went out of him into everything he wrote. In all his work we have the impression of this intense loyalty to his art, we have the impression also of a profound dissatisfaction that the deed falls so far short of the splendid dream. Thus after reading Chapman's translation of Homer he writes, Much have I traveled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen, round many western islands have I been which bards in fealty to Apollo hold, oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his domain, yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold, then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his. Come, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise silent, upon a peak in Darien. In this striking sonnet we have a suggestion of Keats's high ideal, and of his sadness because of his own ignorance. When he published his first little volume of poems in 1817, he knew no Greek, yet Greek literature absorbed and fascinated him, as he saw its broken and imperfect reflection in an English translation, like Shakespeare who also was but poorly educated in the schools. He had a marvelous faculty of discerning the real spirit of the classics, a faculty denied to many great scholars, and to most of the classic writers of the preceding century, and so he set himself to the task of reflecting in modern English the spirit of the old Greeks. The imperfect results of this attempt are seen in his next volume, Endymion, which is the story of a young shepherd beloved by a moon goddess. The poem begins with the striking lines, A thing of beauty is a joy forever, its loveliness increases, it will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us, and a sleep full of sweet dreams, and health, and quiet breathing, which well illustrate the spirit of Keats's later work, with its perfect finish and melody. It has many quotable lines and passages, and its hymn to pen should be read in connection with Wordsworth's famous sonnet beginning, The world is too much with us. The poem gives splendid promise, but as a whole it is rather chaotic, with too much ornament and too little design, like a modern house. That Keats felt this defect strongly is evident from his modest preface. 
wherein he speaks of Andiamadan, not as a deed accomplished, but only as an unsuccessful attempt to suggest the underlying beauty of Greek mythology. Keats's third and last volume, Lamia, Isabella, the Eve of St. Agnes, and, 